Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Acts, the first chapter, verses 1 through 11. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he'd chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while he was going, and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is one of our sacred stories. Thanks be to God. Well, I must begin this morning by thanking you for the opportunity to be with you in the pulpit today. I am honored that you have entrusted this role to me today. And I must say that as I've prepared this sermon, I have found myself in a bit of a swirl of emotions. While I'm relatively um, new to Lakeshore, I am not new to Waco. And many in this congregation I have known and admired since I was a toddler. So many of you have been my mentors, my heroes, and the grown-ups in my formative years who I came to know in the Baylor family. So the thought of me preaching or teaching you feels, um, leaves me feeling about as out of place in that endeavor as a milk bucket under a bull. So all that to say, I have come to today with a fair amount of fear and trembling, but under it all, tremendous gratitude to be with you. So our text today, as we've said, is from the book of Acts. And this story is Jesus' ascension into heaven after the resurrection. Now Luke is the only gospel writer to distinguish Jesus' ascension from his resurrection as a separate event. Luke actually tells the story twice. Once at the end of the gospel and then again at the beginning of Acts. And this story serves somewhat as a chronological bridge between the time of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke and the time of the church in the Acts of the Apostles. Do you all hear that feedback? 
or is that just me? A little bit? Okay. Perfect. Thank you. While some details differ between the two stories, basically the gist of our text today is a short prologue in the first five verses, providing a reader's digest of Jesus' acts on earth. And then Jesus offers some post-resurrection instructions concerning location and the importance of waiting for the coming baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the disciples ask a question about whether now is the time when God will restore the kingdom of Israel. And the disciples get the terribly unsatisfying answer that now's not the time for you to know, nor should you even be thinking about that. And Jesus underlines again the coming sign of power which will give them authority to be witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then Jesus makes an exit upward via cloud as the disciples watch. And then almost in a Saturday Night Live skit fashion, these two individuals robed in white, believed to be angels, appear looking at them and looking in the sky and saying, why do you stare in the sky? This same Jesus who just left, he'll be back. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not a big fan of this passage. <laughs> um, honestly, I can't remember hearing too many sermons on it. Um, sure, we definitely hit the witnesses to the end of the earth part, but the whole floating up into the sky part is not one we Protestants have tended to know much of what to do with. Furthermore, it's, it's difficult even for hardcore literalists to um, entertain Jesus physically floating up through space. In addition, the story has always seemed a bit forced to me, like the life story of Jesus is just wrapped up too neatly slash bizarrely, providing a dramatic way to explain Jesus' absence in a post-resurrection world. But even apart from all of those things, I don't like the passage because it is so completely unsatisfying. Take a moment and try to turn off that part of your brain that wants to jump to what Paul Harvey would say is the rest of the story. Take off those Pentecost glasses and put yourself in the position of the disciples in that moment at that time. There you are, a people who had witnessed all of these amazing things, seeing this guy who you thought was the Messiah die and be a brutal death and be buried and then you grieve for three days thinking it was all some kind of sick miscalculation of faith. And then he is raised from the dead and you start to have hope again and maybe think that the ground is stable beneath you. And, and then Jesus is with you for 40 days and, and Jesus is going to take back the power and the kingdom of God is going to prevail and Israel is going to be restored. And then Jesus says, mm, you know, it's not for you to know. In the meantime, great things are coming your way and you're going to be witnesses all over the place. And then he just fades away on a cloud. If I'm truly able to live in that moment and not jump to the Pentecost story, but really linger here in the moment, the prevailing thing I experience in this passage is loss. It's not a triumphal exit. 
Maybe it should be, but it, it doesn't feel that way to me. It's melancholy and uncertainty. Just behind the great fullness of Easter comes this confusing absence. It's that post-holiday blues when the company leaves, and the decorations come down, and you change the sheets and put away the good dishes and just sit in the quiet and the emptiness kind of steeps in your heart. I don't like that. It doesn't feel good. And I don't know about you, but I'm pretty worn out with loss. If we look around at our world today, it is everywhere. Politically, we are a more divided people than we have ever been. Environmentally, it seems that we cycle from one disaster after another, and people can barely recover from one devastation before another in another part of the world takes the stage. And loss is not relegated to these big macro levels of life. I think we can all name some personal grief that we bear in watching a loved one suffer from a debilitating illness or from the lasting impacts of a poor choice or some other circumstance that just can't be righted. One of my favorite authors is Pema Chodron. I highly recommend her if you have not read her. I've been reading several of her works lately and a prevailing message in several of her books is that when you experience uneasiness, don't run from it. Lean into it and see what that moment has to teach you. So if I take her advice and I lean into this uneasiness, I find the moment changes a bit. It feels less like abandonment and more like a moment to breathe. I'm reminded that maybe the ascension teaches us to trust these moments that feel so absent and melancholy. These spaces between the experiences in our life as the place where a new history is possible. If we can let ourselves be suspended in that moment, maybe even let our mouths fall open for a moment in astonished disbelief, we may find ourselves beginning again, changed, maybe more mature. There are times when the experience of Christ's absence helps us figure out how to carry the light ourselves, to discover the power of an Easter life within us. There is both loss and power and death and resurrection in this mysterious realization that incarnation includes us as the body of Christ. Christ is not removed from us in our universe, but now pervades it. This same Jesus in a people called in Christ's name. These earthly-minded angels help us write our vision, reminding the disciples then and the disciples today who we are, that we may not have the best track record. We are only human, limited by time and space, vulnerable to prejudice, and 
misunderstanding, exposed to people's whims of love and hatred, just like Jesus. But this seems to be the pattern of God's presence, the pathway of love and grace which both they and we are to follow. And it will always be both sides of the coin, rejoicing and groaning humanity, leaping and prostrate, joyous and sad, anointed with oil and crowned with thorns. Nothing has changed in that God has chosen real humanity as the vehicle of divine presence. I know, I know, I skipped ahead to Pentecost, didn't I? Well, if Jesus' ascension is to have meaning for us, it must be by way of underscoring Jesus' presence still on this earth, and that is through us. So the ascension unexpectedly turns our gaze earthward. This same Jesus is here. You know, the problem with looking up is that you can't see the person next to you. You can't see their needs. Or worse yet, you can't see this same Jesus in the person next to you. And that is what this is really about. To be church together is an act of faith that invites us to experience the world as filled with Christ. This same Christ who fills all and is in all. And the natural byproduct of that worldview is a crazy big love that can ride the waves of chaos in life and the losses in life because we care more about being the body of Christ than we care that we might get hurt by unfortunate circumstances or a callous world in the process. You know, I'm not a big fan of country music on a regular basis, and I certainly usually don't get my theology from them. But um, as I was preparing this sermon, I heard a country song on the radio. And you know, I think it said it better than I could of what it means to lean into the uneasiness of living out of a God-sized love. A band called Old Dominion sings, You know, you can't keep the ground from shaking, no matter how hard you try. You can't keep the sunsets from fading. You got to treat your love like you're jumping off a rope swing, maybe because the whole thing is really just a shot in the dark. But you got to love like there's no such thing as a broken heart. Some of you know that song? At the end, it's pretty powerful. I think it's just a nuance in the way the music is, but they actually say you got to love, love, love as a broken heart. And just so you know, this is not some cheesy Pollyanna love who thinks that if we all just have a big group hug, that all our differences and sadness are going to just fade into the background like Jesus on a cloud. We know it won't. But we also know that if we don't choose to risk clothing ourselves in that love and beginning there first in all our encounters, in all our circumstances, in all our sadness, in in all the things that we face, if we don't clothe ourselves in that love, then we fail 
and the most important job we have, which is to be that same Jesus as the body of Christ in a world that so needs that love. Let us pray. O oh God, as we prepare for Pentecost, remind us who we are and who you are. Give us the courage of your kind of love that doesn't worry about our own heart getting broken. Give us that kind of grace, God-sized love. It's in your name we pray and ask. Amen.